Good morning. It is good to see you here this morning. Uh, as you know, I've been gone, or most of you know, I've been gone through the month of August, and uh, this is why. Uh, this axe, it's actually all wood, uh, but it was given to me, made by a friend of mine here in the church, and given to me a number of years ago, and on this, uh, on this axe is this verse, Ecclesiastes 10.10 which says, if the axe is dull and he does not sharpen its edge, then he must exert more strength. Wisdom is the advantage of giving success. And uh, so one of the things about teaching week to week in the Word of God is that there has to be a time to sharpen the axe. And so we were able, because of you guys, to be able to do that through the month of August. And I'm thankful to the elders and the deacons for their ministry and for uh, Wes Crago preaching through Second Timothy. And uh, that is one of our our goals, is to pass on the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ, that we'd worship him, and many others would come to know Jesus as Savior and worship him also. And uh, so if your axe is dull, if you are weary and tired, perhaps, maybe you need a little break, or maybe just a nap. Maybe a nap would be good. Not right now, though, okay? (laughs) Wait till later, after lunch. And uh, so we are thankful for you, and uh, we were able, because of that time, to... uh, go on something, we do something we've never done before, and uh, that was play tourist, and we did an Alaska cruise uh, for one week while we were gone, and uh, so we went on this cruise. Of course, we had to go on the economy version, and <laughs> the only downside is they made me ride in the dinghy that they're towing there, but no, actually, we went on this gigantic floating hotel uh, up through Alaska to Juneau, Skagway, and Glacier Bay National Park, and it was uh, quite an experience. We don't consider ourselves cruise people. This is the first time we've ever done it in our lives. And uh, so we went and uh, we in- enjoyed our time. Uh, the picture on the left is of Don, taken by one of the crew members after I tried water skiing off the back of the boat. <laughs> Not really. And then the one on the right is, oh, are we supposed to be back to the pier by 3 o'clock? There they go. No. That was another ship. I was amazed uh, how many cruise ships are up in the uh, Inland Passageway as well as Glacier Bay National Park. Basically, we shadowed one another. There were always two or three of them in every port we were in. And uh, let me see what else we have here. Uh, Yes, there's Glacier on the left, Don, taking photos of Glacier Bay National Park. That is fabulous. That was uh, really worth the whole thing was the day we spent in Glacier Bay National Park. I did not realize it is the largest national park in the United States, acreage-wise, and probably one of the most remote, uh, which was very interesting. And to get our picture together uh, on the right, you know, no photo, no proof. And so there we are together on uh, this cruise ship. Now, really, we do have a photo of us. Thank you, Grace Point Church. Uh, You made this uh, uh, opportunity available to us, the time. And so that was a great thing to do together, and we really enjoyed it up there. Uh, We also came home for a couple days after the cruise, went to Montana to a granddaughter's birthday, and uh, we spent four or five days over there with our grandchildren, uh, who are all energy-infested. And uh, then we came home, and we rested up for a week. And uh, so we are glad to be back at Grace Point Church, back in the pulpit this morning. So thank you to the elder deacon team. Thank you, Grace Point Church. It was a good time away, and I, must, I feel like uh, the axe did get sharpened, by the way. And I feel uh, good and energetic, and the Word of God has ministered to me and to us, and we are very thankful uh, for it. And so I appreciate you all. 
in our time off, we visited a couple of different churches and uh, went to worship service, and it just made me long to be back here with you all, with people I know and, and with a, a congregation who we love and care for. So it was a long time away, but yet it was important and good. <clears throat> One of the things we noticed on that particular ship, uh, I quit calling it a boat because I guess that's not a correct nautical term, it's a ship, but... Uh, there were 4,000 passengers on this ship and 1,700 crew members. And uh, what I noticed was is that uh, the 4,000 passengers really didn't do any work. Have you noticed? I didn't do anything. I mean, if, if I could have gotten them to carry me down to dinner, I probably would have done that. You know, That's about the most energy or exercise you get on a ship, unless you really are purposeful about going up on the track on top and doing all the events. Uh, but I also noticed it was a very artificial environment. If you've been to Disneyland, you know that's an artificial environment, uh, any of the Disney properties. And I believe cruise ships, what really struck me was it's very artificial. I mean, they have a schedule every day. You can be involved in all sorts of seminars and classes and events and just tons of stuff. I, I found that most of our challenges was to avoid the jewelry and perfume salesmen. That's my biggest challenge on that ship because there's a whole mall of shops. And, of course, we, didn't, we stayed away from the casinos, and, uh, but they make it very easy for you to spend money on one of these trips. But it is also an artificial environment. It's supposed to really make you feel happy. Uh, but the longer we were on board and just overhearing some conversations, observing some people who were together and talking to other people about their life's events, uh, there was a lot of unhappiness and even uh, what we noticed, some, uh, some tension between some people uh, on board the ship. So it wasn't a perfect environment at all. And, you know, in our contemporary life, uh, we are big in uh, contemporary times and society for the experience. That's why we're willing to go to a coffee shop and spend $5 on a cup of coffee because we want the experience of drinking a cup of coffee or go to a restaurant with an African safari theme and buy a really bad hamburger for $12 so we can be in this bad African scene. You know, it's experience, and that's, that's our, our, our way of doing things today. It's all about the experience, and, of course, it's instant, too. I was thinking about social media and about the fact that uh, before I even finished this sermon, you could have tweeted out whether this guy's on, if he's doing anything right or not, and the whole world could know it. Not that they care at all, but, uh, you know, this instant society and instantaneous thing, and we've been so conditioned by 30-minute television shows and social media and the instant uh, gratification, basically, of the Internet and of computers and all of that, that we tend to view all of life, that uh, it should be a perfect environment with instant results. And uh, I'm uh, concerned about that. And in our contemporary society for the Christian, there is some difficulty with that because what we find is that the spiritual walk is not an instantaneous event where we get it done and we have arrived and we move on to other things. And the walk of faith is most difficult. As Gord Vidal, the writer, said, today's passion for the immediate and the casual because we are all in a hurry. And if you ever have found yourself tapping the, your foot waiting for the microwave to finish its 30-second cooking of your hot uh, water, uh, you know what I mean. Or tapping your foot when you wait for the computer site to pop up for you, uh, you know what I mean. And that pervades uh, most of our lives. And yet, 
The Christian life isn't designed that way, even though, especially here in the Western world, we want shortcuts. And uh, you go into any Christian bookstore, if there are any left, you know, I don't know if there's any brick-and-mortar Christian bookstores left. There, you can get it all online. But you look at the titles and look at some of the devotionals and other books, and uh, they all seem to promise something. and They really over-promise and under-deliver. And so we tend to think that the next book, the next song, the next conference, the next podcast or blog or sermon, when it doesn't deliver where we believe we should be with the Lord Jesus Christ, then we can become impatient if we're not careful. Well, in the Old Testament, uh, there were people who walked the pilgrim pathway. Uh, Israel was commanded by uh, God in the Exodus to go to Jerusalem three times a year for three festivals, and they would go up to Jerusalem and they would walk, and it was an arduous journey. Uh, there was no quick getting there up trails that were dangerous and rocky. And they would go up because Jerusalem topographically is the highest city in Israel. And so uh, we are going to look at what they would sing because they would sing as they went, away, went along the way. Traveling to Jerusalem would bolster their confidence and their courage and remind them of why they were going and who they were and why God was doing this with them and for them. And so today we're starting a 16-part series on the Psalms out of Psalm 120 through 134. If you take your copy of Scripture and turn to Psalm 120, it's almost in the middle of your Bible. In fact, uh, about two pages back is the center of the Bible, the center verse of the Bible. And in this upcoming uh, election year, I just want to remind you... The center verse of the Bible is uh, in 118, verse 8. The shortest psalm is uh, Psalm 117. The longest psalm, of course, is Psalm 119. But the middle of the Bible is Psalm 118.8. Just a reminder, this is free. This is a footnote. This is a sidelight. Just free today for you to remember in 2020 as we face national elections. Verse 8 of Psalm 118. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. That's the center verse of the Bible that you hold in your hands. But Psalm 120 through Psalm 134, you'll see the ascription in your Bible. It might be variously translated, but in mine it's the songs of ascents. The songs of ascents or the pilgrim's songs or the songs of degrees is what he's talking about. But one thing... To remember, as we as believers, and if you are serious about your faith and serious about growing in the Lord Jesus Christ, or if you're not a believer and you've never trusted in Jesus Christ for everlasting life, never believed in him for everlasting life, but you're curious, this will be a good journey for you as we ascend, if you will, as we go through these pilgrim songs and ascend, and they're about worship and about who and what God is. There's a number of themes that run through these. But we need to remember, first of all, that the world is no friend of grace. The world is no friend of grace. Now, grace is more than just the prayer you say before you at the dinner table. Remember, theologically, grace is the the uh, excuse me, grace is the unmerited favor to the utterly undeserving. The unmerited favor to the utterly undeserving. Grace is a theme throughout Scripture, and God's grace is an expression of His great unconditional love for us. And so we are saved by grace. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, of course, tell us that. 2, 8 and 9 tell us that. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. 
And so that grace, that caress is what we are talking about. And the world is no friend of grace. In fact, many who name the name of Christ are not a friend of grace because they live in a legalistic system of do's and don'ts and they don't recognize that God's grace is what and the reason why they have a future and a hope. Remember John 3.16, the only reason we can stand before a righteous, holy God and be found pleasing in his sight is because of what Jesus Christ has done, dying for our sins, rising again on the third day, ascending to the right hand of the Father, where he is our advocate and our intercessor in this day. But John 3.16 tells us that for if for God so loved you, you can put your name in there, for God so loved you that he gave his only son, that whosoever you believe in him, you will not perish but have everlasting life. Every time I look at promises in Scripture, I look at the consequence of the promise, whether it's negative or positive. And in that verse, it certainly is positive, isn't it? Everlasting life. Who wouldn't want that consequence? And uh, what is the condition for receiving everlasting life? Belief in Jesus Christ. John, of course, is the gospel tract of the whole New Testament It is written so that you may believe that he is the Son of God. And so that's the grace we are talking about. The world is no friend of that. Some Christians in Christendom are no friend of grace. If a church preaches grace, that salvation is by believing in Jesus for everlasting life, they start adding all sorts of things to that. Believe him and make him Lord of your life. Believe him and repent of your sins. Believe him and do all these other things. Be baptized and give money and go to the church. That is an aberration and a heresy of the pure gospel message. Paul addresses that in the book of Galatians. He said, you foolish Galatians, why are you doing that? the grace and the purity of the gospel. But when you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ for everlasting life, the world is no friend of that. You may have experienced that. You may be a recent believer in Jesus for everlasting life or one who's been a believer for decades as myself. And yet I recognize because I was an adult when I believed in Jesus and I moved out of agnosticism and atheism as a college student And then finally, God opened my eyes to the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, believing in him. But you know what? There were no crowds gathering around, patting me on the back, applauding or doing any of that. There were no congratulations. Perhaps there was no direct hostility to your decision or of belief, but perhaps a a gathering of puzzled disapproval from family members or friends who said, what? You're a Jesus freak. What's happened to you, you know? Or else there's just agnostic indifference to that decision. They don't understand the gravity of that choice and that decision you've made to believe in Jesus for everlasting life. And it can be a surprisingly formidable uh, opposition to your faith. In fact, some new and young believers in Christ struggle greatly because of the opposition they face in the world in that they live. There's an old tradition which sorts out uh, basically the uh, adversaries to our faith, and it's the world, the flesh, and the devil. You've probably heard of that. It actually comes uh, in a metaphor out of uh, Matthew chapter 4, the temptation of Jesus when he began his ministry. Remember, Satan was tempting him. He had been fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, and he was hungry, and Jesus said, if you're really the Messiah, if you're Jesus, you can turn these stones into bread. And, of course, Jesus answers with Scripture, and rebuke Satan, and then Satan tries some other things. He tries uh, to tell him, if you cast yourself off the temple mount, that the angels will not allow your foot to hit the stones. And, and he was testing Jesus' faith and tempting him there. And, 
And then the, the devil showed him all the kingdoms of the world, if you remember Matthew 4, and said, these can all be yours if you'll just bow down and worship me. And so that's idolatry. And so these three difficulties we face, the world, the flesh, and the devil, and I think if you've been a Christian for very long, you recognize that we've been well warned of the perils of uh, the flesh and the wiles of the devil. Uh, if you sat through our study through the book of James, you know that James addresses these things very directly uh, as we studied through the book of James this last year. Uh, the temptations we face from the devil and from the flesh have definable shape, and there's a historical continuity to them, if you will. Satan, being the master illusionist, is always at work to, uh, uh, to uh, trip you up in your faith. Uh, it's easier to recognize those two things, but I think the one that is most difficult to recognize is the world. When it says the world, is talking about this world system, if you will, and uh, the world we are immersed in because uh, we are of the world, we are in the world, but we're not of the world as believers in Jesus Christ. And so there is this aspect that everything is changing in our culture, in our world, and society. And the older you get, perhaps the more distressing it becomes because change seems to be going on all around us. In fact, I read an article this last week. It says now that the world's knowledge is doubling every 12 months, which seems incredible to me. Now, I did not check that out for the veracity of that statement. It came from a reputable source. But they said the world's knowledge is doubling every 12 months. So now you don't just have a specialist in botany, but you have all these other things, and no one person can know it all or any other scientific effort. It's growing so quickly and so big. But each generation has to deal with the world in a new form. Uh, the world is different than it was for these ancient Jewish people going up to Jerusalem, and yet... It, we, they still face the problems and the difficulties. And uh, one author has said, we are so immersed in our culture that we have a hard time discerning the impurities in it. Uh, it's like a fish in water doesn't understand that it's water, you know. And we are in a culture that we have a hard time recognizing the temptations and the impurities in it. Another author said, we know that the atmosphere in which we live erodes faith, dissipates hope, corrupts love, but it is hard to identify just what is wrong. Did you get that? We know that the atmosphere in which we live erodes faith, dissipates hope, and corrupts love, but it's hard to identify just what is wrong. In the book of Jeremiah, there's this statement that I, it comes to me, and it's kind of a haunting statement because we like to feel that we are sufficient, we are adequate, we can do all things, you know, in our, in our skills and our, whatever your skills are and talents and, and how we handle life. Uh, but Jeremiah is challenged in that. He says, if you're worn out in this foot race with men, what makes you think you can race against horses? And the point is, is that when we compete with the world, when we're, we're in this atmosphere, this worldly thing that's changing all the time, how can we compete against something of greater power? And, of course, Satan is the power that is roving over the earth, and we see it in our culture, in our society. And so this aspect of spiritual growth that we're talking about, and we will be talking about through these uh, 15 psalms as we go through them. Today is just an introduction. It's like uh, the trailer to the 15 psalms. And we're not going to exactly exposit any one psalm today, but we are just introducing them today. 
But what is harmful to our spiritual growth is this assumption that anything worthwhile doing can come quickly and is acquired at once. That troubles not only me, but many other writers and preachers and you perhaps, that sometimes we live in this atmosphere of thinking that we can acquire spiritual maturity all at once and quickly. Uh, It's every week I probably get a mailing from some ministry company uh, on basic church issues, whatever they may be, promising that if I'll just buy their program, that there will be quick solutions to complex problems. You know, buy our program or come to our seminar or buy our book, and here's three easy steps to staff Awana. There, Dave, we should buy that one for you. So, you know, and I've just become a bit jaded about all these promises coming across my desk in that. Eugene Peterson wrote one time, It is not difficult in such a world to get a person interested in the message of the gospel, but it is terribly difficult to sustain that interest. Millions of people in our culture make decisions for Christ, but there is a dreadful attrition rate. Many claim to have been born again, but the evidence for our mature Christian discipleship is slim. In our kind of culture, anything, even news about God, can be sold if it is packaged freshly, but when it loses its novelty, it goes into the garbage heap. There is a great market for religious experience in our world. There is little enthusiasm for patient acquisition of virtue, little inclination to sign up for the long apprenticeship in what earlier Christians, generations of Christians, called holiness, unquote. And so that's his analysis of that. And that's exactly true. Our Christian faith in our time has been captured by the tourist mindset, especially in the Western world. And uh, when we were on that cruise ship, we were simply tourists. And every stop, they had outings. You could go on excursions, and you could go salmon fishing. You could go up to the glaciers. You could go up all sorts of things, all sort- go on the train, all these things. And some of you know that because you've been up there. And uh, we were tourists, and we just wanted to see the sights. And sadly, I think there are, are people today who name the name of Christ who just want an easy, tourist-like experience in Christianity. Just show me the next video or the next film or the next book or any, all of that. And, and so the question remains is, are we tourists or are we pilgrims? Tourists or pilgrims? And uh, there are two descriptive terms in the New Testament which describe one who has believed in Jesus Christ for everlasting life and is following him for everlasting life. The two terms are the English words, disciple and pilgrim. And we're familiar with disciple. The Greek word is mathetes, and it means a follower or a learner. A disciple is a person uh, who people, is a person and a people who spend our lives apprenticed to our master, Jesus Christ. We're always growing, learning relationship with Jesus. When we were on that cruise ship, I did not learn a thing about that ship. I was not apprenticed to anybody on that ship. I was just doing my own thing. You know, about the biggest thing I learned is it's not a boat, it's a ship, and there is fore and there's aft and there's port and there's starboard. Okay, that was it. I know nothing about the engines, the propulsion system, about guiding the ship. I was not a, I was not a disciple of cruise ship business, and I was simply a tourist. Uh, a disciple, though, was a learner. 
and not in the sense of an academic classroom necessarily, as important as knowledge is, and all you have to do is read the Apostle Paul uh, when he talks about the mind and the importance of the mind because our actions spring out of how we think and what we know, and uh, James even talks about that. Uh, But it's not all an academic classroom, but rather it's the sense of a worksite of a craftsman. Now, some of you are great craftsmen. You have learned a trade, whether you use it in your day-to-day job or perhaps it's something you've acquired, whether it's welding or carpentry. Uh, All these skills, uh, business, uh, accounting, farming, all of these things you have apprenticed at some point with somebody who knew more than you did and taught you those goals. And uh, we only acquire knowledge about our master, but importantly, we acquire the skills of faith from our master. That's why on this Sunday morning, if you're depending on 40 minutes of instruction out of the Word of God per week, and that's it, uh, you are going to be sorely disappointed because you need to apply yourself to uh, and allow the God to apply the Word to uh, walk in his truth. And so Mathetes is a follower, a learner. It's a lifelong process of acquisition. It is a lifelong process. It's one of the reasons many people do not finish well. They give up. It seems too hard. It's not instant. I think if you've been in church families for very long, you know people who have dropped out. You know, they have started strong, and they've had this zenith of their faith and excitement, and then they disappear. And they either wander from church to church or go to churches that don't teach the truth of the Word of God, or they don't go at all. And we all know those people. And uh, I have to trust God with them that he will finish what he started if they truly are believers in him for everlasting life. The second word is pilgrims. Parepidemos is the Greek word, and it means exiles on the earth. It's used in Hebrews 11.13 of that chapter about faith and about, we call it the heroes of the faith, but it's really... God's faithfulness to them, strangers and exiles on the earth. It's that word paraepidemos. Uh, uh, 1 Peter 1.1, 1, 1, chosen exiles, 2.11 of 1 Peter, aliens and strangers. Uh, he, th- that word conveys the aspect that this is not our home. We're resident aliens. Uh, we do not really belong here in the long run. We are moving towards something else. This, we as Christians are pilgrims. It tells us, that word tells us that we are a people who spend our lives going somewhere. We are going to God. We are going because the pathway for getting there is Jesus Christ. Remember Thomas in John chapter 14, when Jesus informed them again that he was going away, he said, we do not know where you're going. How do we know the way in which you are going? And Jesus' response in chapter 14, 5, and 6, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. The exclusivity of the Christian way is only one way. There are not many ways to God. There is one way, and that's through the Lord Jesus Christ. We are on a pilgrimage, my friends. We are not on a cruise. In the church, in the Christian life, together, separately, we are not on a cruise. It's not a perfect environment yet, but we look forward to the perfection of being with Jesus Christ. And so that is why the uh, the writer of Hebrews defines this pilgrimage in chapter 12 of Hebrews. uh, And this is the, the message's translation. Do you see what this means? All these pioneers, and he's referring back to Hebrews chapter 11, who blazed the way, all these veterans cheering us on. It means that we'd better get on with it. 
Strip down, start running, never quit. No extra spiritual fat, no parasitic sins. Keep your eyes on Jesus who both began and finished this race we're in. And many others before us who followed Jesus have finished well. You may have heard the last few weeks there are some well-known people who named the name of Christ who have not finished well. Uh, one young man uh, who just denied his Christianity. And I don't think he knew what the true gospel was to begin with. But it has affected so many people. So whatever the cost, we want to finish well and keep going. Now, when we go to the Psalms, and here in Psalm 120 and through 134, these Psalms of Ascents, we need to remember this basic principle and basic thing about the Bible is all of Scripture is written for us, but not all of Scripture is written to us. Get that? Not all, all Scripture is written for us, but not all of it is written to us, okay? Let me, let me uh, give you an example here. If you look at Deuteronomy 14.21, the command there from God is, do not boil a kid in its mother's milk. I can say with great pride, I've never violated that command. I can keep that command with two hands tied behind my back. Never boil a kid in its mother's milk. Talking about a goat, of course. And uh, there's things we can learn about God's holiness through those chapters in Deuteronomy and about his setting aside Israel. This was written to Israel, not written to the church today. And so we can glean what does it say about God, what does it say about human beings, and what is God's program for doing that today. And so just a reminder that all of Scripture is written for us, but not all of it is written to us. So as we go through these Psalms, one Psalm per Sunday, you will see the mention of Jerusalem and Israel and David and so on, and we'll recognize those things historically because that's part of our interpretive process is to consider the historical setting and then to glean from that uh, what God has for us today about himself, his character, and about uh, what he is teaching us through that. And so this songbook for today, you know, really it's an ancient songbook. It's difficult to date because there is a, a combination of psalms here that have been put together. But in our ongoing apprenticeship as disciples of Jesus Christ and as pilgrims, uh, this songbook instructs us on the road to maturity in Christ. There is so much here. I'm looking forward and excited about it. So you look at the identity of these psalms, a song of ascents, and you'll notice from 120 through 134, or it says the pilgrim songs or songs of degrees, but they're all translating the same Hebrew word, uh, words. There's two words, shir hamaloth, shir hamaloth. And it's uh, two words, and it's difficult to interpret, and so scholars wrestle with this kind of thing. The first word, shir, means a hymn or a song, but the second word, mahala, which is the singular, means both a step or a stair or a going up. So going up where, the question arises, where are we going, how, when? To complicate matters, the Latin Vulgate, which the order of our English Bible is based on the Latin Vulgate, uh, uses a, a Latin term there, which means for graded or gradual songs. And so what does that mean? And so there's four different interpretations. I won't bore you with all the details, but basically uh, the first one is accents, uh, these ascents, excuse me, ascents, these psalms of ascents are steps or gradations within the psalm. In other words, this is a pattern within the psalms with the idea that's introduced in one verse is picked up and developed in the next verse and so on and so on in a step-like consistency. 
that's not always the case, though, so that viewpoint is a little suspect. The second one is that it was referring to the 15 steps in the sanctuary on the Temple Mount leading from the court of the women to the court of the men, these 15 steps, and there's a fanciful uh, interpretation that the choir would climb up these steps singing these very psalms, those 15 songs, but there's no evidence that that ever occurred. Uh, thirdly, the ascents are the going up from Babylon to the Israel at the end of the exile. And Ezra and Nehemiah, the same word is used of going up from Babylon to Israel when they return to the land. And that has some merit, but I don't believe that that is the case of what it means here, that uh, Greek word, Hebrew word. It means uh, the ascents are the going up of the pilgrims at the annual feasts, and this is how we are approaching it. I believe these psalms were sung uh, probably in order as they went up from the villages, the towns, their farms, as they went up each year uh, on the way to these annual feasts. They went at Passover, Pentecost, and the Day of Atonement. Passover in the spring, Pentecost in the summer, Day of Atonement in the fall. And they would go up and they would sing these. They would go up as family members, as families together and and tribes and these groups of people would go up to Jerusalem to worship and to fulfill the responsibility for Jewish people to go up to Jerusalem uh, to worship God. Again, I said Jerusalem's the highest city in Israel, and so it was always up from anywhere you came from in Israel at that time. And so they went to these three annual feasts in the spring, the summer, and the autumn, and they sang these songs as they went up together. And what it did is it was a reminder of who they were as a people, God's covenant people. And by the way, uh, there is great teaching going around, majority teaching, that uh, the church has replaced Israel in God's plan. We do not teach that here. We do not believe that's biblical because of uh, many, many scriptures. Israel and the church are never synonymous in the New Testament when they're mentioned together. God still has a plan for the nation Israel, for Jewish people, his chosen people. It's still yet to be fulfilled. They have not uh, occupied the total amount of land that is promised to them in the Old Testament. God made covenant with them, uh, land, seed, and blessing, and he will still fulfill that. In Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11, talk about the future for Israel as well as many other places. So we do not teach replacement theology here. Uh, Many churches around us do. And they believe that we are the covenant people. We are not the covenant people. We are the saved people because of Jesus Christ and because of the covenant he has made. And so Israel still is distinct. And so we know that the fact that these themes are repeated in these psalms here. As we go through these psalms, we'll see there'll be kind of a a major theme that goes with each psalm. But technically, all of them occur afflictions that Israel was experiencing the gracious way God cared for them and provided for them, and then the blessings of being in Jerusalem. They had suffered contempt and scorn, which they still do, even in our own national government, by the way, near extinction, traps, bondage, affliction, and yet Israel is still there because God is providing for them. Now, I also make a distinction between the promises God has made to the Jewish people because they are his covenant people and also the current political entity called the nation of Israel. We do not, dare not blend those together because the nation of Israel, the political entity, does not make every decision rightly or goodly, and many of them are not even believers in God itself. And so we need to make that distinction. That's for another day of prophecy, though. 
But there are five groups in these psalms, especially if you include uh, Psalm 135 and 36. And they're groups of three, and they basically start, the first psalm in each group expresses a situation of distress. Look at 120, verse 1. In my trouble I cried to the Lord. And then then there's a, a second psalm emphasizes God's power to forgive, to rebuild, to give hope. I will lift up my eyes to the mountains, verse 121 or chapter 121. From where does my help come from? And then the third, there's a theme of security. Uh, Psalm 122, I was glad when they said to me, let us go into the house of the Lord. So there is this pattern, if you will, uh, as they go through that. And so there are no better songs for the road. And, of course, that's a metaphor for the Christian life, the Christian journey, that it is a lifelong endeavor, that we are growing together. Some of you have just started. Others of you, we are getting closer to Zion, aren't we, you know, to heaven, uh, to being with Jesus Christ. And there are no better songs for the road than those who travel by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And since all of the essential, but not all, since many of the essential Issues of the Christian life are contained in these psalms, not all of them, but many of them for discipleship and worship. Uh, we are going to look at those over the next several weeks. We'll take a break at Christmas time uh, from Thanksgiving to Christmas, and then we'll pick them up again. So uh, there's going to be uh, 16 weeks total in this series, Lord willing. Remember, we learned that from James, Lord willing. And uh, so we are going that. You know, there's an aspect where we all live between the times. Have you ever thought about that? Uh, Paul Tournier, uh, in his book, A Place for You, describes the experience of living in between. Let me explain what he says. He says, between the time we leave home and arrive at our destination, in between. Between the time we leave adolescence and arrive at adulthood. Between the time we live, leave doubt and arrive at faith. It is like, he explains, like a trapeze artist at a circus who is swinging through the air and lets go and waits for the catcher. He's the flyer and the catcher comes and he's going to catch him. And it's that very infinitesimal moment where he's hanging in the air ready to catch another person for support. It's a time of danger, expectation, uncertainty, excitement, and extraordinary aliveness. All of us, in some aspect, live in between the times, don't we? And for the Christian, we live in between the time we believe in Jesus for everlasting life and the time we will see him face to face in glory. Christians will appreciate these psalms uh, they, as, as we go through them because we are between the time we leave the world's environment and arrive at Jesus' side, between the time we leave sin and arrive at holiness, between the time we leave home on Sunday morning and arrive at church in the company of God's people, between the time we leave the works of the law and arrive at justification by faith. These are songs of transition, brief hymns. Some of them are very brief that provide courage, support, inner direction, and getting us to where God is leading us in Christ Jesus. For the pilgrims of uh, going up to Jerusalem, it reminded them as they sang who they were and why they were going there. But the in-between times when they were working their vineyards and their fields and herding their sheep and doing leather projects and pottery and working in their house, they could remember what God was doing and he would encourage them as they thought of these psalms. Remember, they didn't have paper copies or, or scrolls of their own that they could just get out and read any time. They memorized this stuff and they would sing it to one another and that would help them memorize it as they went through. 
But you know what the danger is and the problem is, is that meanwhile, the world is whispering in your ear. This world system is whispering in your ear. Why bother with all of that? Why keep doing this? Why go to 16 sermons about the Psalms? There's plenty to enjoy without involving yourself in all of that stuff. And the world would tell us that the past is a graveyard. Forget it. The future is a holocaust. Avoid it. Don't think about it. Uh, yet, and they would say there's no payoff for discipleship, there's no destination for a pilgrimage. You know, get God the quick way, you know, buy the latest book, whatever. And I'm not against the latest book, uh, but uh, don't think that it's going to solve everything all at once. These ways, uh, these psalms were used in ways the multitude of Isaiah described as saying, uh, Come, let us climb God's mountain, let us go to the house of the God of Jacob, He'll show us the way. He works so we can live in the way that we're made, Isaiah 2, 3. And so everyone that travels the road of faith, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ today for everlasting life, you are on the road to faith. Some of us may stumble, may trip it up and, and get wander off, but uh, he is going to be faithful to carry us through to completion. And uh, when we travel that road of faith, it requires assistance from time to time. That's one of the beauties of the church. We are to help one another, pray for one another, encourage one another in the truth. We need cheering up when our spirits flag. We need direction when the way gets unclear. So the next 16 weeks, and I'd encourage you to start reading through them. You can read through all of 15 of them fairly quickly. Uh, I'm not going to give you a time that it takes me because there's always people out there saying, oh, it took me longer. But anyway, you can read them fairly quickly. But each week, next week, we'll start with Psalm 120. As God gives us our days, we will do that. So the choice is, are you a tourist or are you a pilgrim? Are you a tourist or are you a disciple, a follower of Jesus Christ? For those of us who have decided that we're no longer tourists, but we're going to be pilgrims, and we are traveling the path of the pilgrim pathway, the songs of a sense, they combine with the cheerfulness of a travel song, and the practicality of a guidebook or map. So we're going to find some very practical things that God will apply to each one of our lives in this. You know, don't be fooled by their brevity. They are rich and they are full of truth as we go through these. Their unpretentious brevity is excellently described by William Faulkner. You may remember the novelist William Faulkner. He said this, quote, They are not monuments, but they are footprints. A monument only says, At least I got this far while a footprint says, this is where I was when I moved again. And that's what these psalms hopefully will be in your life, not just a monument to go back and say, oh, I remember that, but it is a marker in your spiritual life that I grew from this point on. I can look back and see my footprints in that psalm, in that time, but I'm, beyond, I'm going beyond that. I'm still on this pilgrimage, on this travel. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning, and thank you for your word. Thank you for the people you used to write down these beautiful and wonderful psalms. Thank you for your people in Israel who would walk up the pilgrim pathway to Jerusalem three times a year. And they would sing these as they go. They would memorize them. They would uh, encourage one another with these songs. And Lord, and remember your great and gracious care of them. And we thank you and praise you for your holiness and your perfection and the fact that we as weak human beings and those who have uh, difficulties in our spiritual walk, that uh, you know that and you are carrying us through to completion. And we pray that we be sensitive and yielded to your Holy Spirit in each day and recognize that you are with us. You never leave us nor forsake us. 
Thank you for this morning. In Jesus' powerful name I pray. Amen.